Well, how's it going, everybody? So uh, the Lent Guide, I'm going to say, is going to be awesome. It's going to be practice-based. It's going to be a great way to on-ramp into a new community group. So if you're not connected already in a community group, uh, this will be the right time to do that. So February 17th, everything begins for Lent. It'd be an opportunity for you to jump into a new community at that time. If you're not currently in a community group, that would be a great opportunity for you. So uh, before we get into the message and the reading of the text today, I want to just address the big question that's on everybody's mind uh, this morning, which is, uh, is it going to be Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers? That's the big question on everybody's mind today, and I'm just going to give you my prediction. So if you're watching this at 6.30 or 8.30 tonight, here's the deal. I'm going to give you my prediction. You're going to find out if I'm a good prophet or not. All right, so I'm predicting Tom Brady wins today primarily because I've spent my whole life rooting against the Patriots, and I can't think of anything that would hurt the Patriots more than Tom Brady winning with Tampa Bay this weekend. And so I think that's my prediction. So I'm going to predict a Tom Brady victory with Tampa Bay and I think the Bills are a shoe in uh, over Kansas City. And so that's my, that's my, that's my thinking today. So uh, check me on that. All right, next week, you can check me on that and see how well I did on the football predictions. We are in a new series today, and it's in the Gospel of John. And so we're going to read a couple of verses, John 1, 1 to 4, and then we're going to read John 14, and then we're going to skip all the way to the end of John and read from John 20. So follow along with me on the reading, and then we'll dedicate the rest of our time here uh, to, uh, to, to truth, not just my foolish predictions on football games. All right, here we go. All right. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now skipping to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now on to John 20, 30, 31. If you want to know what John was written for, why are we studying this book to begin with? Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book. Then John's going to tell us why he wrote the Gospel of John. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That's the whole idea. And so we're studying the Gospel of John that you may, by believing, have life in His name. All right, the Word became flesh. That's our series. And I want to make an observation right off the bat here from the text we just read. Before the beginning, like before... God said, let there be light. Before the beginning, there was a relationship. This is fundamental. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Uh, You see that in the text clearly. You see it in Genesis 1.26 when the creation narrative is written. Then God said, let us make man. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian God, active in the creating of everything. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here we have this sort of sensation that before there was a before, before time, before space, before matter, before you and me, wherever a figment of imagination, if you can speak that way, because God's an eternal God, and obviously it's very difficult to speak in terms of time before time, but the time before time, there was a relationship. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living a perfect community. And what you understand about the meaning of life is inextricably tied to what you understand about the meaning of relationships. It's, this is, you, you can't understand what life is about without understanding what relationships are ultimately about. You were made for relationships. It's a part of your makeup. It's part of your wiring. Not only is God a relational God, but God made a relational people. So you have the Word was with God, was God. You have the Father and the Son working together to bring about the creation of everything in the context of community, to create a humanity that was meant for community. As the Scripture says in Genesis 2.18, it is not good for man to be alone. We were meant to be in community together. Which means, and this is really fundamental, if you want to understand what it means to be human and why you have the feelings you do and what's going on inside of you, there's no feeling, listen, no feeling that is darker or more illustrative of the fall than the feeling of loneliness. Like, nothing describes what brokenness means more than the word loneliness. And you know this, I mean, you know this from your own personal experience, that loneliness is the darkest of human, ex- human experiences. It doesn't get darker. It's, it's absolutely the darkest. Why? Because God is a God of relationships, and He made you for relationships. And so when you are living in isolation and alone, you're experiencing the darkest of humanity. So I, I have been, I, just full disclosure, I, I don't do well in isolation. I'm an extrovert. I need people. I need conversation. I need connectivity. Uh, I don't like a lot of hugs, but a high five here and there is really good for my soul. And so I, I, am, I really am in need of relationship. And I was realizing that this felt need had manifested itself over the holiday season. Because for the first time in my lifetime, I binge-watched Christmas Hallmark movies. Like, binge-watched them. Couldn't get enough of them. And my wife was like, what happened to you? I was like, I don't know. I just like it when they get together at the end. You know, I I like the connection. It's predictable. I can turn on this show, and I know they're going to begin in loneliness, but they're going to end in community, and I just couldn't get enough. And if you've watched like three Hallmark movies, you've only watched one, because they're all the same. And, And But I didn't care. I was like, I'll take the same over and over and over again. Why? Because I was experiencing sort of internally this need for community and a distinct quality of being human is the longing, literally longing, it felt in the gut longing for intimacy and connectedness. Like that's distinctly human experience. And here's been my observation. I've been a pastor for a number of years now. I've, I've counseled a whole a lot of people over the years. I've spent a lot of time walking with people through their own dark stories. And I, just, I can just tell you, this is my observation, that every human being needs to be known and loved, but most of us will settle for just being loved. Because there's a real fear that if you knew me, you wouldn't love me. And that idea that we have to protect others from hearing our whole story and experiencing our whole life, it, will, it has, a, has a, an effect of having, having sort of mitigating our connectedness with other people and, and, and that mitigating connectedness with other people because we can't really be vulnerable because we're afraid if you're known, we're not going to be loved. What that does, it, it isolates. 
and it fosters feelings of aloneness. You see, to be known makes us vulnerable to rejection because our darkest feeling and greatest fear is loneliness. And we will settle for shallow connection rather than risk real relationship. And people do every day. Settle for shallow connections rather than deep relationship. Years ago, I watched uh, YouTube, uh, I watched on YouTube uh, a video from Brene Brown on her research in vulnerability. It was like 2014, I think. The, the YouTube video was called uh, The Power of Vulnerability. It was actually a TED Talk that I watched on YouTube. Powerful video on vulnerability. In her talk, she says this. There was only one variable that separated the people who have a strong sense of love, this is from her research, and belonging. So the thing that separates people who have a strong sense of love and belonging and the people who really struggle for it, what, what, what was it? That was the people who have a strong sense of love and belonging believe they're worthy of love and belonging. She's like, in my research, I, I recognize that there were people who felt really connected with other people. The people who felt really connected to other people felt like they were worthy of being connected with other people. They felt worthy of love and belonging. She said they fully embraced vulnerability. They talked about the willingness to say, I love you first. The, the willingness to do something where there are, there are no guarantees. The ability to, to walk into a conversation and say, I love you. And I, I don't know if you know somebody like this, but there, there are some of us in the world, and I'm including myself in that, who, who have struggled in the past with the phrase, I love you. Who, 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 who have struggled to say it to, to other people. Maybe there's somebody in your mind who you, you could even think of who, who has struggled to sort of mouth those words. I remember when Vanessa first told me that she loved me when we were dating even in that, in that kind of context. And I was like, I really like you too. You know, I, I, it's hard. How do you say it? Because it exposes you. It makes you vulnerable. I want you to know something. That in our relationship with Jesus, he was the first to say, I love you. He was the first to step out and say, you know what? I really love you. He was the first to be vulnerable. He was the first to expose himself to the pains of humanity. The Bible says this way, we love because he first loved us. He was the first to step into that relationship with you and me and say, I love you. And when we see Jesus become vulnerable for us, we realize we can be vulnerable with him. When we see that, that the scripture says the word became flesh, you could read that the word became vulnerable. In the words of the Hebrew writer, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he put on the weaknesses of flesh. He became vulnerable. He became vulnerable to loss. One of the, the passages of Scripture that is most striking to me is when Jesus witnesses his friend Lazarus dying. And the Bible says he wept. And when we see Jesus weeping over a lost friend, we can have confidence weeping with him as our friend. Because we know like he understands. Like he's, been, he's become vulnerable to the pains of humanity. I mean, he's felt hunger, he's felt, he's felt urges within him 
temptations within him, yet he did not sin, the Hebrew writer says, but he felt them, he knows them, he's experienced the fullness of the human experience. In John eleven thirty five, 35, it says, Jesus wept. If you want a Bible verse to memorize, it's an easy one. He wept. Tears came down his eyes. Why? Because sadness, loneliness, the loss of a friend, the brokenness of a relationship because of death, like all of that, the thing he came to die for. Jesus died on the cross, by the way, to end all death. He died on the cross. He was buried in the tomb. He rose again. He conquered sin and death. He overcame it all. And he's there witnessing the death of his friend Lazarus, and he's weeping because this is not okay. Because we were meant for relationships. So I'm going to say something. This is not hyperbole. I really believe this to be true. And people can, through the gift of common grace, have deep relationships and not know Jesus, but I just want you to know this. A secret to rich and full relationships is being known and loved by Jesus. I mean, this is a secret to rich and full relationships. Why? If the most important eyes in the universe see you and love you, you can risk being seen by others. If Jesus has seen you, truly seen you, and he knows you, and he knows your pain, he knows your past, he knows your sin, but he knows, he knows your insecurities, and he loves you anyway, and he loves you to death on the cross, loves you, that, that just gives you so much courage, like, Jesus has seen me and he loves me. It, it opens up your heart to be vulnerable with other people. Because you know that you're secure. I mean, the most important eyes in the universe look down on you lovingly. What, what a gift that is to you and me. When I was in Israel a couple years ago, I bought a bunch of these tear uh, bottles. And the reason I bought these tear bottles is because there was a, a story that was told as we were traveling through Jerusalem that impacted me. And as the person was telling the story, he quoted from Psalm 56. This is David speaking about God, and he says, God, you have kept count of my tossings. You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not all in your book? The habit in that time was when you went to a funeral or some, you had some great loss in your life that you would capture some of those tears in a bottle. The bottle was designed so the tears would not evaporate and there would be a record of your sadness. Some would even record the record of their tears of joy. And that would be kind of a symbol of, of tears of sadness or, or tears of joy. And David's going, God, you've kept a record of my tears. Like that's, how, that's how aware of me and my life and my story that you are. You have a record of my tears. And I want you to know, Jesus knows every tear that you have shed. But listen, friend, look, this is awesome. He has come to wipe away every one of your tears. Like He's aware of your tears and why you cry and the feelings you have and the vulnerabilities you've experienced in life. But listen, those, those are not the end of the story because Jesus died, was buried, He rose again and conquered sin and death. He's coming back again. And when He comes back again to Revelation 21.4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Wipe them away. You can think about the record of your tears and how often tears are connected to the brokenness of relationships. So often, maybe most often, 
Maybe in your life you'd be hard to recognize a time that you didn't shed a tear or you shed a tear for something other than, I should say, a lost relationship or a broken relationship or a strained relationship. Most of our tears are shed because relationships have somehow been broken down or broken apart. So I've been wrestling with this sort of question about relationships and community. And the question I've been wrestling with is, during COVID, technology has kept us connected, but has, but has it deepened our connections? That's the kind of question I'm kind of wrestling with. And many of you are watching online today, and I recognize that's the case. Like, people are watching online today, and we're connected through technology, but are we deepening our connections? That's, that's really the question I'm really wrestling with, quite honestly. So I, I turned to an MIT professor, researcher, uh, who's written a lot on technology and its effects on the human psychology. I read her book a couple weeks ago called Alone Together. Sharon Turkle says this. She says, the narrative of Alone Together, that's the title of the book, describes an arc that we expect more from technology and less from each other. And I think that's really interesting. That we've grown to sort of trust technology and lean into technology to do something for us that only relationships can do. She says, insecure in our relationships and anxious about intimacy, we look to technology for ways to be in relationship and protect ourselves from them at the same time. I thought, how insightful she is on this. Because we all feel vulnerable, and we all are afraid to say I love you first, and we all have sort of this narrative of shame because of sin in our life, and, and wouldn't it be great if somebody could offer us a technology that we could have connection without vulnerability? That we could have connection without deep relational intimacy. And technology has made the false promise that you can be connected. But many people are realizing that they're not, their connections aren't growing deeper. She says this in the book. She says, yet suddenly, in the half-light of virtual community, we may feel utterly alone. This line has haunted me. As we distribute ourselves, we may abandon ourselves. Sometimes people experience no sense of having communicated after hours of connection. And how many people in this kind of current climate that we're in, where we're connected, but not connecting? That we're, we're talking at, but not talking with, and not experiencing real sense of community. She continues, technology is seductive when what it offers meets our human vulnerabilities. And it turns out we are very vulnerable indeed. We are lonely but fearful of intimacy. Digital connections offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. Listen to that. The illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. Our network life allows us to hide from each other even as we are tethered to each other. We'd rather text than talk. There's like this fear of connectedness and intimacy. And maybe technology has offered us a way to stay connected, which has been a good thing, but maybe it's, it's been a crutch that's kept us from real, true connection, community, relationship. I, I do think that we are experiencing something of a crisis of loneliness. People are experiencing it. They're living in it. Feeling like they're connected but not connecting. Feeling like they're, communi they're communicating on social media but not really communicating with people. Not really experiencing life together. It's a kind of a crisis, I think, of loneliness right now that we're experiencing. And the answer to our crisis of loneliness 
And this is not just, you know, I, I think people can experience community and not know Jesus, but I just want you to, I'm not, this is not hyperbole. If you want an answer, here's, Jesus is the answer ultimately to community. The answer to our crisis of loneliness is the Jesus who dwells. Listen to the text. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus became flesh and He lived with people. I'm going to say some things here, and I want you to, to catch them, okay? They're, these are significant. And sometimes we have to sort of do big summary statements so we catch the big ideas of the Scriptures. The story of the Bible is not the story of a desperate humanity seeking after God. That is not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is a story of a God seeking after a desperate humanity. You will not find in the pages of the Bible a story of humanity seeking after God desperately. You'll find God going after a desperate humanity. You have to look no further than the fall in the garden. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, when they sin, don't go looking for God. They hide. And what does God do? He goes looking for them. And that is the story of how it works in the Bible. It's always humanity hiding out and avoiding deep, authentic, real connection. It's always God coming in to that brokenness saying, I'm here to reconcile broken relationships. And the Bible forces us to imagine the depths of relationship that we can have with God. It really pushes the boundary of our, of our imagination, of what it looks like to be in community with God Himself. The story of the Bible, here's another squeaking, sweeping summary. The story of the Bible is the story of a father who sent his son to take a bride and to adopt many children. That's the story of the Bible. The story of a father who sent his son Jesus to take a bride, the church, and to adopt many children, me and you. It's a story of God reconciling a broken family, a broken relationship. That's the story of the Bible. And here's what the Bible doesn't teach you. The Bible doesn't tell us what we must do to get to God. That's not the story of the Bible. The Bible tells us what God has done to get to us. That's the main story of the Bible. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He's God. Jesus is God. And what did God do? Well, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God came after us. He came after us. Another sweeping generalization about the Bible, but is also true and important to know. In the Bible, it is never humanity who ascends. It is always God who descends. You will see this throughout every page of the Bible. It's never man who ascends. In fact, when man tries to ascend in Babel, it's widely condemned. It's a bad idea. It's not man who ascends. It's God who descends. So the Bible doesn't tell of humanity's ascent from brokenness. The Bible tells of God's descent into the brokenness. That's the story of the Bible. So you see it throughout the pages, and I'll just illustrate it for you quickly. God descends. How does God descend? Well, we already talked about it. In the garden, God descended. Adam and Eve sinned, and God came in the cool of the day on the first missionary journey and walked in the garden looking for Adam and Eve. But God also descended on Mount Sinai when God gave the law. 
Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and God had descended on the mountain and God gave his law. One day he's going to give the law on the hearts of men through his Holy Spirit. That's prophesied in later texts. In the garden, on the mountain, on the tabernacle. There's a season in Israel's history where God said, I want to live with you in a temporary dwelling, and you're going to follow me as I come down in the cloud by day or a fire by night, and then my cloud will descend or the fire will descend on the tabernacle. You'll know that's where my presence is. And the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And God came down on the tabernacle. And then later in Israel's history, God said, I want a permanent dwelling with you. And Solomon ended up building that temple. And God made a temple. What happened on the temple? And God descended not, on, not only on the garden, not only on Mount Sinai, not only on the tabernacle, but on the temple. And as soon as Solomon finished, he prayed. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering. The glory of the Lord filled the, filled the temple. By the way, as you are walking through... The community of Israel, during the days of the tabernacle, and you ask the question, where's the holiest place on earth? People would have said the tabernacle, that's where God's presence is. You walk through the the, the city of Jerusalem in the days of the temple, and you ask the people, where's the holiest place on earth? And they would say, the temple, because that's where God's presence is. But then something dramatic happened in history. God descended on the garden, He descended on Mount Sinai, He descended on the tabernacle, He descended on the temple, then He descended as Jesus. And literally the text reads, He tabernacled among us. And the Word became flesh and dwelt, or He tabernacled among us. And if you were to ask the disciples and they were to answer correctly, where's the holiest place on earth? It'd be wherever Jesus is. That's the holiest place on earth. Well, God not only descends in the Bible, in the garden, he not only descends on Mount Sinai, not only he descends on the tabernacle, not only he descends on the temple, not only descends as Jesus, but God descends on the disciples in the form of the Holy Spirit when he writes the law on their hearts. What's interesting when you read Acts 2, it's also interesting to note that when Pentecost is happening, it's, it's a time of celebration of the giving of the law. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, just like on Mount Sinai, there came a heavy wind. A sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance to them and rested on each one of them. You know, when Christ died on the cross and the curtain split in two in the temple, separating the holy place from the holy of holies, it was pointing to a future reality. And the future reality is one that you and I are experiencing right now. A kind of community with God that is unfathomable. A kind of community of God that blows your mind. A kind of community of God that you have access to right now. Or don't you know, in the words of the Apostle Paul, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. So if you were walking the streets in the days of the tabernacle and you said, hey guys, where's the holiest place on earth? Tabernacles, where God's presence is. If you were to ask, hey, where's the holiest place on earth in the days of the temple? They'd say, hey, the temple, that's where God's presence is. 
If you were to answer correctly, when Jesus was roaming the streets, you said, Jesus, wherever he is, that's the holiest place on earth. He even called his own body the temple that was going to be torn down and raised up again, like he was where God's presence was. So my friend, where's the holiest place on earth today? If you're a believer of Jesus, and the holiest spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that's you. If you belong to the church, living stones being built up into a temple where God's presence dwells, that's, that's, that's the holiest place on earth. And so not only does God descend in the garden and God descend on Mount Sinai and God descend on the tabernacle and God descend on the temple and God descend as Jesus and God descend as the Holy Spirit on the disciples, God descends in the end in the new city. And when John sees the vision of the new creation, he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. What's it doing? Coming down. Coming down from heaven to earth. Why? Because it's always God who descends. It's never man who ascends. And God has descended into our broken relationships to bring about a ministry of reconciliation for you and me to carry on because our relationship with Him has been broken or been fixed by, by, by Christ's brokenness on the cross. And, and we've been restored. And He's raised from the dead. He's given us His presence, the presence of His Spirit. He's more working within us, a sanctifying work, calling us nearer and nearer to, to formation that looks more and more like Jesus. And so we are walking in that as living sort of you know, the, the, the living presence of God in the people of God, like all around right now, that's, that's what's going on. Like wherever you are, at home or right now here, like if you are a Christian and you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins and he was buried, he rose again, conquered sin and death, like you have the Holy Spirit in you. You are his holy presence on this earth. You're pointing to his ultimate renewal of everything. So here's a key takeaway. As we're making this observation about Jesus. It is not the church that has a mission. It's the missionary God who has a church. And what you see throughout the pages of Scripture is that God is always on the move. The question is never, like, what are we going to do and how do we get God to bless it? It's like, what is God doing and how can we join Him? Because He's on a mission. He's proven it over and over and over again. He's the one who descends. So we don't invite God to join our mission. We join His. We jump in. Do it the way He did it. Jesus says it this way to His disciples in John 20, 21. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. He's like, I'm sending you out the same way I was sent. I'm sending you out to look like me in the world. Eugene Peterson in his great book, uh, A King's Fisher Catch Fire, he says, Following Jesus doesn't get us where we want to go. It gets us where Jesus wants us to go. Hear that? Following Jesus doesn't get us where we want to go. It gets us where Jesus wants us to go. It's, 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 it's <laughs> Christian mission is recognizing God is on the move, and we're asking the question, where is he on the move, and how do we join him? So Jesus is our model for ministry. That's how we find our model for ministry, is by looking at him. Jesus says this about himself and his ministry in Luke 7, 34, and it, wouldn't, it shouldn't surprise you that Jesus' ministry is relational. He's a relational God who created relational people. What he's doing is restoring relationships. 
And so the Son of Man has come. This is Jesus' own description of himself. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, this is the description of others, have given towards him. Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But Jesus says, you know what? I came eating and drinking. I came seeking out community. And if you're going to join Jesus on mission, it's going to require making friends. Like we, we, can't, we can't just keep doing what we've been doing, leaning into technology to stay connected without having true connection. We can't keep just leaning into to, to technology to disperse ourselves while losing ourselves. Like we're going to have to do the, the deep relational work that Jesus did was making friends. And being friends with people who are sometimes not like you. Being friends with people who outsiders looking in said, oh, those tax collectors, those sinners, those drunkards, those gluttons. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's, those are my friends. If you're going to join Jesus on mission, it's going to require making friends. Uh, when I teach this in a seminary setting, I've taught incarnational ministry and, and college settings over the years. I usually begin the class this way. I sit on the desk and I say, Class, if you were sent to an unfamiliar place as a missionary, where you didn't know the language, you didn't know the people, you didn't understand the culture, what would you need to do first? And then we just whiteboard it out and just write it all the things down. And there are no, you know, no dumb questions, just dumb people. Just kidding. All right. So we, do, we write down all the questions. I make jokes and like that and try to, you know, to, you know, diffuse attention in the room. We just kind of do some stuff. And we usually come up with the same list, generally, that describes the incarnation. See, the incarnation shows us how to be on mission with Jesus. And the outline is really simple. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. It's Word, flesh, dwell. That's the outline. This is how you do ministry like Jesus. You want, to do, you want to do the reconciling work of Jesus? You want to do the deep relational work with Jesus? It's going to be word, flesh, dwell. So that's what it's going to look like. See, the incarnation shows us how to be on mission with Jesus. And so when I share this in a technical sort of setting, I might say, hey, the word is translation. That's, that's putting, putting, you can't share the gospel, the good news about Jesus. If you don't speak the language, you've got to figure out how to speak the language. And, and you also need to put it in the right context so people can understand it. And flesh is contextualization. And dwell is proximity. That's getting near to people. But really, the pathway of mission begins in proximity and works its way to speaking. And so, to put it really simply for all of us, is dwell is making friends. That's what Jesus did when he dwelled, he made friends. Flesh is learning stories. That's contextualizing. It's making friends and knowing people's story. One of the, one of the places where I think that Christians can really do some good work right now in the world is before they cast judgment, say, tell me your story. Before, they, before they, they, they leverage an accusation, say, maybe I need to understand something more about your story. Maybe instead of just staying vaguely connected, try deep, authentic relationship. Making friends and learning stories and speaking grace and truth. Speaking grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And truth without grace is not really true, and grace without truth is not really grace. And we need both, grace and truth. 
So why do relationships break down? Here's some ideas. One reason relationships break down is because we're not in community. You know, we just aren't practicing proximity. And we just aren't near each other enough. It's easier for me to have a one-dimensional view of you if I don't really know you and I don't know your story. So we're not in community and we're not sharing stories. And there are a lot of relationships right now that are strained just simply because proximity has been strained and the, short, the story sharing has been strained. Where people just haven't had a chance to say, this is what's going on. This is what my life is like. This is what's going on in my, in my own sort of world of influence. And we're not speaking the same language even. So we think we're talking, we think we're, communi- we, we're, we think we're communicating, but we're not actually communicating. See, mission is more, it's no more complicated than eating, eating and drinking and making friends. If you want to make it really simple, Jesus is dwelling with sinners. And from that point, sharing grace and sharing truth. So a question that we might bring back to our New City staff team that in the early days we had as a regular staff question. In fact, it came up every week in staff meeting in the early days of New City. I'd ask the question, uh, in the last month, who sat around your dinner table? Because the implication was if your dinner table didn't look like the dinner table of Jesus and you weren't doing mission right. If you weren't conversing with people who thought differently than you, who, who lived different lives from you, who, were, who, were, who, were, who, who stretched your thinking and understanding of, where, of what the human condition was in our community, in our city, they weren't doing mission right. Because mission is not something you do to somebody. It's mission is something you do with somebody. It requires dwelling. Word flesh dwells. Speaking those words of truth, it's understanding those stories, but you can only do that if you're living in community with people. So I I don't often do this, but sometimes I just want to make sure that everything that I'm saying is clear. So here's a summary. This is what we covered today. Before the beginning, there was a relationship. And at the fall, all relationships were broken. But God was the first to love and to restore our relationships. He, was, he made the first move. He walked in the cool of the day in the garden looking for Adam and Eve. We, we are now sent out to restore relationships with God's restorative love. That's the ministry of reconciliation He's entrusted us with. And after the end, there'll be eternally new and unbroken relationships. Isn't that good news? Eternally new and unbroken relationships. Again from John's Revelation, Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. In other words, all relationships will be restored. (laughs) Won't that feel good? The pain point I kept going back to as I was preparing this message today was that question that kind of came up to me as I was preparing. I was just asking the question, what are the, what are the times I've cried? What, what are the tears that God has bottled up for me? When someone in my life has died and that relationship has been broken because of death, when a, when a friend and I are not 
living in community together and feeling brokenness or when I'm not feeling right with a relationship of meaning or matter in my life, those are the times I shed tears. Those are the most often the times I shed tears. And I just felt so grateful that Jesus sees all that brokenness in our relationships and he left heaven and he came to earth and he lived with people and he wept over the loss of his friend Lazarus and he's making it all new. He's fixing it. He died for all that brokenness. He was buried in the tomb. He rose again. He conquered it. He's given us this promise of new life. I mean, it's so beautiful. And I just got to say, I mean, if you don't know Jesus, there's no better day to know him than today. <laughs> and reach out to him and ask him to be your friend. Because <laughs> he's available for that. Oh, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, um, there have been so many times in my life where I, uh, I've questioned, uh, <laughs> questioned like your capacity to love someone like me. <laughs> and I'm not uh, always uh, convinced that I am deserving of love. And I'm thankful you have told me so beautifully, not only in words, but in your deeds that you love me. And I, and I love you, Lord Jesus. I love you. I thank you for the depth of relationship you offer to each one of us through the power of your Holy Spirit. And you know I've been asking for this all week long, Father. I've been asking you to make your presence known to those who are lonely. That there's anybody watching right now or here in the room right now that is lonely, I pray that you'd make your presence known. Just by uh, the miracle of your Holy Spirit. It is in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.